Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. In the, phys- in the hardback that we handed out, go to page 299. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18. Did everybody get sermon notes who want them? Put up a hand if you did not get sermon notes. We're going to hand those out as well. Did everybody get sermon notes who want them? If you have them in front of you, you see there are two whopping blanks. And this, of course, means that Pastor Greg is going to preach a nice, concise, short sermon and get us out early for brunch. And the regulars chuckled. Page 299 in the hardback, 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18. I guess I should get there as well. few weeks ago, pouring straight out of a conversation with the elders, what was on their heart when I asked them, hey, what does our flock need right now? What does the church family need? They said, you know, there's a lot of chaos in the world. Amen? And I tried as best I could. I'll get feedback from them here in an elder meeting coming up. I tried to take what I thought I heard them say and and put it together in a general thesis for a a sermon series. And what we've been talking about for, this will be now the fourth week, is that the world is filled with huge problems. No one should deny it or minimize those problems, right? Anybody here, everybody tried to share with a friend something huge going on in your life and they either changed the subject to talk about themselves, well, let me tell you about what I'm going through. Didn't that just feel like a warm, fuzzy That just felt great. Oh, you just made it about yourself. What a good friend. No, not so much. Or minimize it. Oh, that's nothing. Let me tell you what happened to me three years ago. Right? Or Job's friends. Oh, you probably sinned. God's punishing you. (laughs) Are you for real? Did you just say that out loud? See, some things you say on the inside and they shouldn't come out. (laughs) Eliphaz, you shouldn't have said that. We validate the hurt and the pain. Yeah, that's awful. That hurts. That's real. And the God of the Bible is bigger. Six weeks of it. You know why? Because if Netflix doesn't make a series smaller than six weeks, I mean, come on. (laughs) Apparently, we have to be told a minimum of six times. You can't watch an hour of basketball, an hour of football, without Budweiser coming in like eight times with the exact same ad. So if repetition, repetition is the key to education, education, then let's do six weeks. And in fairness, the scriptures give us lots of stories of the bigness of God, right? 
If you wanted to look at the scriptures through that lens, you've got plenty of stories. Big problem, bigger God. I did not struggle personally looking for stories to, to emphasize this point and to try to build our faith. I think that's what was in the heart of the elders. Let's, let's, let's build the faith of the saints. So let's get the eyes out of the water. The water is choppy. We are walking on water. All of that's crazy, right? Say yes. Yes. Walking on water is crazy. But our Savior called us out of the boat. There are things that are true with a T, and there are things that are true with a capital T in the kingdom of God. What's true with a capital T is Jesus is standing there, and he told us to walk on water. So that's kind of what we're doing with this series. Big problem. Bigger God. Part four, Elijah and the Baal prophets. Now, just so that I know my audience, this is not for any judgment. This is not to single you out and make you feel alone. I need to know, because I got a lot of feedback last week from Pastor Dennis's sermon. By the way, thank you. I know he's not in the room, but thank you, Pastor Dennis, for uh, doing a great job last week pe- preaching um, five stones, only one of them needed. Love that story. Okay. Goliath, big, bad, braggadocious, 40 days. Yep. Love that story. Got a lot of feedback about the degree to which we know the story. So would you throw a hand up if by the mercy of God and his providence, if you grew up in church, like the first 10 years of your life, you were in church every Sunday, would you let me know by show of hand? Ten, age 10 and under, you were in church every week? If you were not in church every week, the first 10 years of your life, would you throw a hand up? So I know kind of my Sunday school crowd and say, awesome, okay, so maybe 60-40, cool. Okay, thank you for doing that. Again, I want this to be a safe place to just authentically share your story because the thing is, for, for those of us that grew up in the church, we forget how insane and brutal some of the Old Testament stories are. Somebody comes to faith at the age of 19 and we tell them about Noah's Ark and they go, wait, God killed everyone? Wait, so their neighbors are on the outside of the boat screaming and pounding on the door. And Well, this is one of my favorite stories growing up. You're ruining it. <laughs> right? Because you came to faith at age four. I came to age, you know, faith at age 26. And, and one of us has critical thinking when we come to faith and one of us doesn't. Well, the Sunday school teacher kind of skipped over that part. Okay. <laughs> The story today is very much one of those. And since we're all grown-ups, we're going to see a story that absolutely confounds the spirit of the age. What is normal for Westerners in the 21st century Northern California to think and how we are supposed to believe, Elijah and the Baal prophets, this story is nonsense. Every drop of this, the Discovery Channel is just not impressed. So don't, I mean, I wanted to say don't wait for the Discovery Channel to do an expose on this story. Oh, they will. They're just going to mess it up. (laughs) They're going to change this and change that and change this and change that until all the miraculous has been sucked out of it. Okay? So, because I only have two points where I want you to actually fill in blanks, there's lots of blanks for those of you note takers. You guys can just, by the way, some of you are really impressive. 
I am not a write it down person. I like just looking at the speaker. And I know some of you guys that you just pen down. That's not, you, you know, you're like me. You're just going to look at the person. Fine. But some of you have really encouraged me. You come up to me after church and you're like, what was this blank? And you've written a tome. And if there is a nuclear holocaust and Martians come from another planet and they only find your sermon notes, they're going to get saved. Thank you. That all nations, tribes, and tongues, and other planets might know him. So thank you. If that's how you learn, and if that's how your brain processes information, praise the Lord. Because some of us are not note takers, and some of us are. Praise the Lord. So it's going to be a while, though, today, before we get to filling in blanks. Because I want to take a nice long journey reading through the text. Sometimes you guys know I like to interrupt myself as I'm reading through the story and explain it a little bit because I got the sneaking suspicion last week with David and Goliath that by God's mercy, and I hope you guys in the last three and a half years have seen my evangelistic heartbeat. If you grew up in church, I love you. I really do. But if you did not grow up in church, I like, I love you more. Just don't tell anybody. I'm I'm, I'm serious. Just don't, don't tell anyone. There's a part of my heart, if you didn't come to Christ until you were 37, if you didn't come to Christ until you were 58, there's a part of my heart that just jumps out to you, and I want to serve you, and I want to bring you along. Does that make sense? I can't explain why. My heart goes out to you, and I want to, not in a pity sort of sense, I'm just excited to invite you into the family. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm excited for what God has for you. So, We're going to take a slow, and it makes it more interesting when Pastor Greg interrupts the text. Okay, so I'm going to take a slow journey through all of these 40 verses so that everybody knows the story, because not everybody grew up in Sunday school being lied to. I mean, not everybody grew up going to Sunday school. So we're going to take a slow journey through the story so that everybody knows the story, and then the quote-unquote normal part of the sermon will do that. It'll just be a little bit more brief with only two points, a couple illustrations. We'll do that as well. Chapter 18, 40 verses. Historical setting. Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egypt was a long, long time ago. But God delivered his people, gave his law. And then what? Did they do a really, really good job following all of God's rules? You're chuckling because you grew up going to church. The rest of us are lost as a goose. No, the answer is no. Did a terrible job. You read the Old Testament for one primary reason, to know people are terrible at following God's rules. We're going to need a savior. Do you know how much time I just saved you? I just read two-thirds of the Bible for you. You're welcome. People are terrible at following God's rules. You're no different. I'm no different. We're going to need a savior. That's the first two-thirds of the... And I'm not telling you not to study the Old Testament. Do not walk out of here going, well, Pastor Greg told me I don't need... And the people of God had a period of three or four hundred years of judges, which just proved the point. Don't put your faith in human leadership yet. I just gave you the entire book of Judges in two sentences. You're welcome. Then Israel demanded a king prematurely. His name's not Jesus, so we did it wrong. And we got king after king after king. And the very best one that we got essentially raped a woman and murdered her husband to cover it up. The very best, right? 
It is a train wreck after a train wreck after a train wreck of human behavior. And these are the people of God. Not the bad ones. The bad ones are even worse. The bad ones are Babylon, right? Assyria, Egypt. The bad ones are really bad, but the good ones are bad too. I think we're going to need a savior. So in the middle of the people of God, I feel like you have to put air quotes around it. Because the people of God, whose king is supposed to, literally God said, fine, if you're going to have a king, fine. But he has to have his own copy of the Bible and he has to spend time every day copying it in his own hand. Could you imagine? I don't mean to get political. Could you imagine if God himself opened the heavens and said, dear America, you're allowed to have a president, but the first three hours of his or her day, they have to open the Bible and then here in college rule paper and a pen have to copy their own copy of the Bible for three hours a day so they know my law. From 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., that person has to copy my law in their own hand for three hours a day if they're going to lead the country. That's what God said to Israel about their king. You can have a king, fine, but he needs to be copying my law. I'm not sure that ever happened, if you've read the book. Not convinced that it ever happened. So Israel is in a mess. There's now a divided kingdom. That's a whole other story. Israel is in a colossal mess where the king of the day either worships Yahweh and generally leads the people in a positive spiritual direction, or he worships false gods and leads all of the people in idolatry. Now, important note, because we're individualists to our core, and so we find this to be really confusing. This did not force individuals to worship It just provided a general spiritual trajectory. Does that make sense? There were always individuals who worshipped God, even when the king was evil, and we're going to see that. There were individuals who would bow down and worship Baal and Asherah, even when the king was good. Individuals are going to stand before God and be accountable for their own choice of who they worship, right? But it's really clear through the Kings and Chronicles, the way that it's written, that there is a general spiritual trajectory that is set at the top So the leadership matters. The king had the authority with the army to go down and tear down every single shrine, if they wanted to, of a particular god. Does that make it hard to practice your religion if your religion was just outlawed? So so who's at the top matters. This is the spiritual climate that we're in. 1 Kings 18. Baal is the false god of choice. 450 prophets. Um, These guys don't have to farm the land. These guys don't have to work a day job. The number of prophets is supposed to tell us the amount of political and financial support, how popular Baal is. That's what we're supposed to get. 450 pastors who can get a salary just for teaching everybody how to follow Baal. And then there's Elijah. That's what we're supposed to gather from the number. This is how popular Baal is. If you're a Christian right now and you're listening to this story we're about to tell, you ever feel like Jesus is not popular and everything else is? You ever feel that way? I have a text for you. 1 Kings 18. Later on in the third year of the drought, because Elijah is a beast, and on behalf of God, he said, you guys have divorced from Yahweh and walked away, and he's going to wake you up just like he promised in Deuteronomy. No rain until you wake up spiritually. What? Now, for sure, if you're a false prophet, 
we're going to know it in a few weeks when it rains, right? But three years later, it hasn't rained. Is now a good time to go to Elijah and say, hey, could you tell me about the God you were telling me about? I, I clearly have something to learn and I have some repenting to do. But no one's doing that. There are not just 450 prophets of Baal in Israel. There are 450 prophets of Baal after three years of no rain. This is a people who are so committed to hating God after he pulled them out of Egypt. Go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Meanwhile, the famine had become very severe in Samaria. So for the kids who grew up in the city, right? Food doesn't come from a grocery store, right? If there is zero rain, eventually there are zero crops, right? The famine had become very severe. So Ahab summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Obadiah was a devoted follower of the Lord. Once when Jezebel, this is the wife of Ahab, had tried to kill all the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had hidden 100 of them in two caves. He put 50 prophets in each cave and supplied them with food and water. Ahab said to Obadiah, we must check every spring and valley in the land to see if we can find enough grass to save at least some of my horses and mules. So they divided the land between them. Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went another way by himself. So Obadiah was walking along. He suddenly saw Elijah coming toward him. Obadiah recognized him at once and bowed low to the ground before him. Is it really you, my lord Elijah, he asked. Yes, it is, Elijah replied. Now go and tell your master, Elijah is here. Oh, sir, Obadiah protested, what harm have I done to you that you are sending me to my death at the hands of Ahab? For I swear by the Lord your God that the king has searched every nation and kingdom on earth from end to end to find you. And each time he was told, Elijah isn't here, King Ahab forced the king of that nation to swear to the truth of his, his claim. And now you say, go and tell your master Elijah is here? But as soon as I leave you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you away to who knows where. When Ahab comes and cannot find you, he will kill me. Yet I have been a true servant to the Lord all my life. Has no one told you, my Lord, about the time when Jezebel was trying to kill the Lord's prophets? I hid a hundred of them in two caves and supplied them with food and water. And now you say, go and tell your master Elijah is here? Sir, if I do that, Ahab will certainly kill me. But Elijah said, I swear by the Lord Almighty in whose presence I stand. Holy cow, did you hear that? Exclusive claim much? That wasn't very inclusive. It wasn't like, hey, he's here with us, brother. No, in whose presence I stand. It's, it's probably not arrogant if it's true, but he's reinforcing that he's a prophet of God. This sounds like Moses. There's a reason that by Jesus' ministry, Moses and Elijah stand alone at the top of the heroes of Judaism. Two guys. And when I say they stand alone, not just amongst Jews and how they teach who are the heroes of our faith, I mean in God's providence, he sent two guys from heaven to chat with Jesus at the transfiguration about his coming exodus. 
Who were the two guys standing on the hill with the glorified Christ chatting? Moses and Elijah. So God thinks these guys are pretty awesome too. I swear by the Lord Almighty in whose presence I stand that I will present myself to Ahab this very day. So Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come. And Ahab went out to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, Are you ready for it? So is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? <laughs> I may have led the people of God in total treason against Yahweh, but clearly you're the problem. I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers. For you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with 400, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who are supported by Jezebel. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. So let's stop real quick. This is, again, this is one of those things that me growing up in the church, I never thought critically about it at all. You just think, well, of course they got together because you have to get to the really cool climax of the story. So, of course, they gathered. When you read this as an adult, especially if we had gone back a few chapters, they're trying to kill Elijah. They've been hunting him. So he doesn't just show up and not get killed. Why does he not get killed in this conversation with Ahab? There's your first question. Why doesn't Ahab just kill him? You know what I mean? Elijah just invited Ahab into a duel to end it all. And Ahab understands the duel. I am the prophet of one God. Invite your other prophets. We're coming to the most public place possible. In the ancient world really not terribly different from today, but especially the ancient world, high places were viewed as closer to the gods. Let's do something intensely spiritual, bring all the religious people, let's settle this. So you and I in our 21st century post-enlightenment minds, we think they're going up for a sightseeing tour and bring their Kodak. Again, explain Gen Z next to you. They are going for intensely religious reasons and it's going to be settled. And oh, by the way, I think Deuteronomy chapter 10. There are two groups here that all claim some loose form of Judaism. So like um, Elijah says, I am the prophet of Yahweh, but the heretic side still say they worship Yahweh all throughout the Old Testament. The groups that worship Baal and Asher will still say they serve Yahweh. It's a syncretistic, that's a, that's a how do I say it in English? They won't just worship Baal outright. They keep mixing and matching and taking the different parts of religion that they like, mixing it together and having the audacity to say, I'm still a Christian. We never do that in the 21st century, so don't worry. <laughs> All throughout the Old Testament, they bow down before Baal, they sacrifice their children to Molech and say, I worship Yahweh. So both sides know Deuteronomy 10. Both sides know Yahweh says, when there's a false prophet, kill him. What you and I don't know as 21st century Westerners is that just by agreeing to meet, everybody who's showing up here knows that someone's going to die. 
Elijah will lose his life if he loses the gambit. The 450 will die if they lose. They all know that already. You and I don't know that. When we get to verse 40, there are 450 prophets of Baal that are going to get slaughtered, and we're going to be shocked. And we're going to go, oh my gosh, that's not very tolerant. Those 450 prophets of Baal weren't shocked at all that they lost their life. They knew they were dead the minute the fire came from heaven. They knew they'd lost. They, they knew they were going to get slaughtered that day. They only had like 60 seconds notice. And it's a picture of how God's judgment is going to be at the end as well. You picked a side, Yahweh or the other side. You picked and it went down the way it went down. You and I just think, well, don't you just like get together at Harvard and you have a debate of ideas and you walk away thinking about it. That, that is how it operates now because under the church age, we don't kill each other <laughs> over who's right and who's wrong. But this is an older covenant. This is before the cross. And in this old covenant, things were a little bit more rough and tumble. And God had said to be brutally clear if someone leads you away from the right worship of me, kill them. And you and I think that that's brutal because we just don't think enough about hell. You and I think it's really bad to take a spear and shove it into somebody's chest and kill them. We think that a physical life is such a big deal and God's looking at their spiritual eternity. You and I can't do math. Eternity weighed up against a life that may only be 80 years. Eternity, 80 years. You and I can't do math. God can. And he's saying, when a, back in Deuteronomy, when a false teacher leads my people away from me, threatening their eternity, kill them. But you and I want to, C.S. Lewis's term, put God in the dock. We want to wag our finger at God and say, how brutal, how judgmental, what a jerk. He's the only one who can see cancer for what it is. And he says, cancer, you nuke that thing and you nuke it now. You nuke it. It'll kill you. You do not mess around with whether we worship the creator of the world or we worship something or someone that will damn your soul. God is the only one who can see clearly. That's why he writes Bible and the rest of it, us read it. Do you write Bible? You're not supposed to. He writes Bible, we read it. He writes Bible, we read it. So they all know what's going to happen. That's why Elijah doesn't get killed here. He just invited the whole country into a duel over who is God and the false prophets are going to die at the end of this because we all know Deuteronomy 10. So that's why they immediately agreed and they all joined together. Verse 20. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. 
And all the people agreed. See how a wager has been set? And, and, and all deities are being treated equal for now. Elijah is about to make it more difficult for Yahweh in just a second, just to prove something. But right now, all, all deities are being treated equal. Verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You have... You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he is daydreaming, or he is relieving himself, or maybe he is away on a trip, or is asleep and needs to be wakened. So they shouted louder, and following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. Little side note, if you grew, and I'm, and I'm not casting any shade on your pastor if you grew up, like I did, if you grew up in a really conservative Christian context, um, you might have heard verses about tattoos. There are certain translations of the Bible that use the word tattoo for Levitical commands. Uh, tattoo is a terrible translation. There were people around Israel that worshipped God through a form of human sacrifice where you didn't kill yourself. You slit parts of your arm and the blood dripped down onto the altar and it was a part of worshipping Baal. So you didn't die, but it was a form of living sacrifice. That's what God condemned, okay? That's not a tattoo. Side note. Anyway, but, it, but it's an abomination. God said it was an abomination. Don't do it, okay? So they don't do that in tattoo parlors, I'm pretty sure. So um, da, 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 da. you'll have to shout louder, awakened, blood gushed out. Verse 29, they raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice. When... Authors of the Bible give timestamps. Is that for kicks and giggles, or do you think they do that on purpose? We don't have time today, but I'd love for, if you guys would study this week. They've mentioned three timestamps that are beautiful and powerful. These guys started calling on Baal at the same time that Jesus was hung on the cross. Elijah started mocking them at the same time that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? which is why people mistaken. I think he's crawling, crying out to Elijah. And now at the time of the evening sacrifice where Jesus gave up his spirit is where Elijah's going to take over and call on his God. They're going to give up and Elijah's going to take over and steal the show. So study that this week. It's pretty awesome. No sound, no reply, no response. Because there's no God there. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he re repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. That's huge. Study that this week. We don't have time. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons he piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. 
After they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. Anybody in the crowd ticked off at this point? No rain in three years. Gallons and gallons of water being poured onto this thing. Who voted for this guy? So they did as he said. And the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. So now Yahweh, at the direction of the prophet, has been put on a higher degree of difficulty. He not only needs to make water come from heaven, this thing's soaked. That's the confidence of Elijah. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, so the author of the book mentions the evening sacrifice a second time. That's called on purpose. He mentioned it on purpose. Elijah, the prophet, he's doing sacrifice God's way, not Elijah's way. This is the opposite of Saul. It's the opposite of Saul. Elijah, the prophet, walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that I'm really awesome and everyone should tithe to my church. No? Didn't, no? Okay, I'm sorry. Prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Guys, where do you think repentance comes from? Where do you think revival comes from? When a country gets turned upside down, where do you think that comes from? Everybody's worshiping Jesus now. You think that came from a fiery preacher? No, it didn't. You don't have a fiery preacher or an awesome prayer meeting unless the Holy Spirit says, we're going to have an awesome prayer meeting. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones. Guys, when the stones, do stones burn? Anybody ever had a campfire? (laughs) I feel like going back to my Exodus sermon. Fire in the bush, the bush is not burning. Is God bigger than the physical world, or is he bigger than the physical world? Quit calling miracles impossible. The world exists. It's all a miracle already. Anyway, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. To add insult to injury, we were thirsty as it was. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Then Elijah commanded, Seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed them there. I love reading the text and being done one minute after the sermon's supposed to be finished. So note takers, this is going to be fast. God is bigger than Satan's lies. Did you hear how Elijah had to show up to a false narrative? Oh, troubler of Israel, it's you. Does that intimidate God when, when Satan runs an opposite narrative? You think God's worried, breaking a sweat? No. In the same way that this entire fight between the prophet of Yahweh and the false prophets was there to settle, where did the trouble come from? Israel's rebellion against God. 
Where's the solution going to come from? Worshiping God. The cross of Jesus Christ is the exact same picture. How are we going to solve this? We're going to worship God. How are we going to worship God? Well, it's not going to be through the Old Covenant, Romans 3.19. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose is to show the entire world that it is guilty before God. Oh, that's a bummer Bible verse. Well, we need to know that we're guilty so that we don't become arrogant and self-righteous. Verse 20, for the more we know God's law, the clearer it becomes we are not obeying it. Ouch. Verse 21, but now a new way to be made right in God's sight has become made known to which the law and the prophets testify, a.k.a. all of the Old Testament has been pointing toward this, Jesus dying for our sins. Paul, Jew of Jews, says, no, the, the Old Covenant was not a waste. It showed us that we needed a Savior. The cross is the new and ultimate Mount Carmel. It is the gathering of the prophets that are slaughtered. You know who was slaughtered that day? Satan's sin and death. Satan knew he lost. Mel Gibson did a great job in the passion of the Christ, showing Satan lying, deceiving, manipulating, and filling Judas, which is exactly what the scripture says. And then artistically, he decides to show Satan realizing that he lost after Jesus gives up his spirit. Because that's probably exactly what happened. He was too arrogant to see what God was accomplishing on the cross. He probably figured it out just a minute later when the veil was torn top to bottom. And he goes, oops, we have a problem. If you're a guest, you're investigating faith, this is my call to action for you. Worship the God who accepted the sacrifice. Did you notice when that fire came from heaven, that's God accepting the sacrifice that Elijah put there. That means Elijah is accepted. Elijah's not sinless. How is Elijah accepted? Romans 3.25 says that everybody before the cross that did not go to hell, they went to heaven because God was looking forward toward the cross and choosing retroactively to allow the cross to be timeless. That all sons of Abraham are, are sons by faith and that the cross forgives all the sins of all the sons of Abraham. Take a look, Romans 3.25, it's amazing. So even the cross of Jesus, although it had not happened yet, that was the reason why Carmel happened the way it did. Worship this God. That's the whole point. Become a Christian. God is going to great lengths to show you how much he loves you and has accepted you despite your rebellion. He's inviting you away from your rebellion. Your second blank. God is bigger than a nation's spiritual bankruptcy. Do you see Israel's bankruptcy in this story? If you don't see it, please study this week. Anybody see some spiritual bankruptcy in your country now? Anybody ever feel tempted to despair and think there's no hope? I'm going to tell this story lightning quick. In what's called the Panic of 1893, stretches into 1895. The U.S. government did not have enough gold, because we were on the gold standard back then, in the treasury to manage all deposits. If everybody in the U.S. who had wanted their money out of the bank, actually, there was one person with a, with a $10 million note, and there were only $9 million of gold. So there was one person that if he had wanted his money, the federal government would have been insolvent. And it got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse. President Garfield knew the political ramifications of running for help. 
This is J.P. Morgan. He's so insanely wealthy, he still has a bank named after him. J.P. Morgan and his conglomerate had so much money, and he had reached out to the president so many times to offer the federal government a bailout. I want you to think about that for a second. Since 2008, we absolutely live in the world of the government bailing things out. He offered the federal government a bailout. Holy cow. That when the newspapers picked up that he had hopped on a train to come down to Washington to talk with the president, every, the runs on the bank stopped. Everybody relaxed. They go, oh, he's going to go talk to the president. Everything's going to be okay. That's how wealthy this man was. How's your pocketbook? How's your checking account? Does all of America settle down when they find out you're going to go talk to the president to handle a financial panic? He and his conglomerate gave the U.S. government $60 million of gold in 1895. Gave the government $60 million of gold so that the panic would stop. And for sure, they made a pretty penny in the years that followed. Um, who's the J.P. Morgan of our spiritual depravity, though? Who could go down to, to the spiritual Washington and save us from our sins? It's going to have to be somebody very, very big. Bigger than big. Bigger than Gandhi. Bigger than Buddha. By the way, Pastor Dennis, I'm blaming you. You went long last week, you inspired me, and here I am at 1023. I'm throwing you under the bus. What I'm here to say is Jesus Christ is the only spiritual J.P. Morgan. He is the only one who could come to humanity, that's what Christmas is, and say humanity needs a spiritual bailout. I will save them from their sins. All of humanity needs it. America needs it. Stop going to the ballot box thinking that you are providing some kind of a spiritual salvation. Your Savior's name is not on the ballot. It never will be. He is a king. He's coming on a white horse. And he's already come. He's inside you. His Holy Spirit, his people, his book. Love, serve. He is saving through his gospel. And his gospel is peace, we're told by Isaiah. His gospel is peace. He's, no long, he's not right now bringing the sword. He's bringing peace to any who will have him. Christian, would you pray and proclaim fearlessly? Would you stop the doom and gloom? Would you stop the America's going to hell in a handbasket? We're, in a couple of weeks, we're going to get back on the horse of doing the Gospel of John and through Easter and a couple weeks after that, we're going to finally finish the Gospel of John. Can I get an amen? amen? Okay, it's a big book. It takes a while. We're going to do Daniel, I think. And do you know why we're going to do Daniel? Because if you're a Republican who's upset about our current president or if you're a Democrat who was upset about our last president, you've never, ever had to deal with Nebuchadnezzar. That's why we're doing Daniel, because some of y'all need to chill out. You've never, ever been told, bow down to a 90-foot gold statue or we'll kill you. It's never happened. And unless there's a government overthrow, that will probably not happen in the United States anytime soon. So to give us some perspective and make worshipers out of us all, we're going to do some Daniel after this. It's going to be good. God is bigger than the current spiritual climate of our country foundation.
He's bigger. If he wants to Light, if he wants to light up North America in the third great awakening and he wants to do it today, he can do it. So let's pray like he can do it. Amen. Let's share the gospel with our friends like he can do it. If we are praying like he is small, we are offending him. Was I preaching right then? Did that hurt at all? It hurt me. My faith is small. I feel offended. Are you offended? If we don't ask him, we're like, exhibiting our small faith. Do we share the gospel like we have a big God who just might save the person that we love dearly? Okay. Holy Spirit, we entrust the word of God today that it is going to bear much fruit in our lives. God, would you make us a church who is fearless with your gospel? God, would you make us a people defined by prayer? God, would you teach us that if you can make worshipers out of us when we worship false God, 450 to one, that you can still do it in America in 2022. Would you grow our faith, please, God? Would you grow our faith, please? Please, God. In the gracious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray, God's people said, amen. amen.